You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Professor Georgia Dunson is a professor with the graduate faculty at Howard University with a long and prestigious career in the field of genomics. Professor Dunson has collaborated across fields with a particular interest in science, ethics, and religion, and is a leading inspiring voice in the field. Emerita this year, having retired from my academic position full-time at Howard University College of Medicine. And now, physically right now as well, I am a graduate professor, a graduate with the graduate faculty at Howard. I am in my office now in the graduate school on the campus of Howard University, where I am collaborating with investigators on various research projects of interest that I am trying to engage genomics into their research program. The year that I retired, which was uh, 2017 from the College of Medicine, I had already initiated collaboration with professor in the uh, Howard University School of Divinity who had uh, applied to the AAAS, uh, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, in their program called DOZA, which is an acronym for Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion. AAAS DOZA have put out a request for proposals for a program they call Science for Seminaries. One of the professors at Howard University in the College of Divinity was interested in submitting an application to this funding opportunity. And he, (laughs) I will say that it was in response to fact that I had tried to make abundantly clear to my colleague that genomics is the science for seminaries. So based on some prior conversation we had had, when this opportunity came out for a a grant on science for seminaries, we discussed how I might work as a science advisor with him to apply for this grant that would be motivated by my conviction that genomics today is the science for seminaries. I am pleased to say that we were successful in being selected by AAAS Joseph to be one of 10 pilot schools that were awarded the Science for Seminaries project. So this... Science for Seminaries um, project. So now, th- this, uh, this, the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, in cooperation with, was it Lilly, the Lilly Foundation? It was a fellowship between the American Association for the Advancement of Science and Science and Seminaries. You mentioned genomics. For those who don't know what this field is, what is genomics? <laughs> okay. 
okay, I might need a backup there. And just the fact that at Howard University, one of the major areas of research focus for me is human genetics. In fact, my graduate degree, my PhD is in human genetics. And it was during the course of my time at Howard that the Human Genome Project came on the scene as a major international initiative. Was that in in the early 80s? When did that start to really ramp up? I can't quite recall. Yeah, actually, the thoughts of it reverberated in the hearts of geneticists (laughs) Uh, probably early on, but it was with the development of the DNA technology that the practical reality of being able to sequence the human genome, which was a major objective of the Human Genome Project in the 80s. But the actual start, formal start of the Human Genome Project was 1990, and it was projected to be a 15-year project. So from 1990, was an expected end date of 2005, okay, 15 years. Amazing. Now... Once the project got started, started getting a lot of press, getting a lot of interest with the products that were coming out over the course. And so um, Francis Collins, who was the leader of the Human Genome Project, (laughs) engaged, shall I say, friendly efforts to sequence the human genome with other interests, but uh, other interests, and it sped up the process, in other words, because as products were coming off and people began to see the potential for sequencing the human genome. By the way, the, one of the, the major, you might say, the primary goal of the Human Genome Project was to sequence the human genome. Sequence meaning the human genome being made up of uh, Average numbers three billion nucleotides or chemicals, four chemicals that actually repeat themselves in a sequence. Let me make sure. I, I want to make sure I heard that. Did you say there are three billion, billion parts chemicals, chemicals inside yeah. the human genome? Well, that make up often <laughs> the human genome sequence is a DNA sequence, a sequence of nucleotides in the DNA, and there are four of them, and we often use the letter representations. Uh, the four are the adenine, which is A, the thymine, which is T, the guanine, which is G, and the cytosine, which is C. Now, the DNA strand is these four chemicals lined up or in order, and there are three billion parts. So you kind of think of a think of a jigsaw puzzle if you will. But it's a jigsaw puzzle where all the parts are one of four shapes. Okay. And we're talking, yes, billion. We're talking to the ninth pieces in this jigsaw puzzle. And it's a puzzle of three billion parts that each made up of four different shapes. And the goal of this sequencing is to determine where each of the three billion positionally is in this sequence. So we sequenced this, or I should say you and your colleagues sequenced those three billion. Not me and my colleagues. 
goal of the Human Genome Project was to determine this sequence for the human genome. Now, certainly earlier work with DNA recombination, when that survey um, came into being, and that's what was in the 80s, a lot of the DNA um, of organisms with smaller genomes, shall I say. And a major part also of the Human Genome Project was to determine the sequence of model organisms uh, okay. that um, over the course of time, starting with eukaryotes uh, or, or smaller genomes, and uh, all the way up to mouse, mice, the genome of the mouse. And now any number of genomes have been done. But the technology or the way, the methodology for sequencing the genome with uh, smaller organisms, particularly uh, microorganisms. And then when that technology was at a point where we could think about the challenge of term determining the genome sequence, that formal effort is an international effort of scientists with the U.S. Uh, partnering with scientists at other sites, which is well-documented, well-established on the Internet, lots of information available online about the Human Genome Project was an international initiative of scientists billed as or promoted as the largest, uh, you say the greatest biomedical, biology undertaking of scientists for the benefit of humankind. So, okay. so and, and sequence with the expectation being all of the genes that code for all of the products, shall I say, that are needed in the manufacture, if you will, or making a human body and putting it together in working order. All of that information is encoded in the human genome. So within those three billion parts series, the information for making every part of the body. That's in our genome. We often describe the genome itself as the complete set of instructions for making and operating the human body. So I have to ask two questions mm -hmm. in light of this, and forgive me for not being a scientist. <laughs> On the one hand, I have to ask, with all of that sequencing completed, what makes us different, let's say, from another organism like a mouse? That's the first question. And the second one is, what makes us so different from one another in our humanity? Oh, Michael, you love to bring these questions in. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's no coincidence that you're asking that question and what's so exciting about where we are now having sequenced the genome. I'm excited because the same AAAS that we talked about, that the science for seminaries, okay, we are, I, Howard is actually one of six institutions currently participating in another initiative from AAAS, those of which involve engaging scientists in the science and religion dialogue. So I wanted to bring, we move from the, the human genome project, giving us this sequence to really the heart of the question you're asking now. What is 
the relationship of having sequenced this genome to our understanding and our knowledge of ourselves in relationship to ourselves, mm. but also in relationship to each other, but also our relationship to God. Mm, okay, great. that project from AAAS is where we are now, and it actually has emerged out of the same question that you raised, because how is science, how is frontline science today speaking to the questions, the issues, the concerns that we face in our various uh, religious groups? And that came from a Pew study that uh, AAAS references, a Pew study in terms of who are we as Americans? Yeah. A very proper question in today's political climate. That's, a, that's an essential question. Yes. It is. Yes. It's amazing the intersection of these things and also the content that we're dealing with. The point being yeah. that the, having sequenced the genome and how the frontline science organization, which is AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, is the largest general, it's international, and it engages all science, all areas of science. It is the one probing the question of the dialogue between science and religion. And that came out of a Pew Foundation study. Fascinating. Which showed that the vast majority of Americans, I mean, we're talking upwards of 80% or so of Americans self-define as either religious or spiritual. Mm -hmm. So the recognition that, that the majority of the population see themselves and define themselves, self-define as religious or spiritual. Interestingly enough, the majority of scientists in that survey also identified themselves as spiritual or religious. Wasn't as great as the general, but it was the majority because it was 50% plus. <laughs> but the importance being the question of if most Americans and even the majority of scientists define themselves as religious or spiritual, the question becomes, what impact, what impact do the lens we look through, our worldview, if you will, our sense of who we are, how does that impact and influence our science? Yeah. In the case of scientists and in case of the general public, how does your worldview, almost like your backdrop, and through the lens you, how does that influence how you engage science? Mm -hmm. How your view of the sciences? So we can look at any area of science, and a big area, especially, um, I am biased in terms of uh, genomics, but a big area is genomics when it comes to the question of who am I? Okay. In, even with genomics, a big area is ancestry testing okay. in an effort to tie in, to get to the question of identity. This That's is like the, the, the 23andMe crowd. People are, are interested, aren't they, in this kind of ancestral testing? They want to know more about their genetic makeup, for instance. 
Yes, let's come back to that. But okay. let me finish this connection between science and religion. Great. Really, is the heart of where we are today yeah. and where we're moving. And your question, immediately when I talked about sequencing the genome, you immediately raised the question about how do we use it, what does it mean, right. how does it impact our sense. So you're right on as you have been in all of us. It's gracious of you. It's where we are today. And of course, we've been engaged in this project. As I said, there are six other universities that are having events on their campus, bringing the scientists together, but bringing them together for the purpose of engaging scientists in the science and religion dialogue. And the religion dialogue obviously deals with a person of people's perception of God, of their own relationship to God, if, if that's part of their religion, and that can vary all the way from no relationship to a, to total relationship, being one with, as far as the spectrum of people's belief, all the way to also know God. So certainly, this dialogue of religion is designed to look at the spectrum of faith, belief, in terms of science, in terms of science. And again, all the way from atheist and no God to various degrees of relationships with God from he's up there and we're down here or he's in everything and blah, 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 all the way to a, even my own bias where we are a one with God through um, the faith. Uh, teachings in Christianity. So this relationship, your question is right on in terms of how does this, what you might say, wonder of sequencing, truly a medical wonder of sequencing the genome, how does it relate to the most fundamental questions of humanity as they relate to who we are? Okay. That's kind of Oh, it's terrific. Now, keep in mind, just as you also raised, once the genome is sequenced, we have to come back and recognize why was it sequenced? The motivation from the scientists, if you will. This was recognized that because the information for making and operating the human body is encoded or is in the sequence of these chemicals that make up the DNA, then there was a promise <laughs> from the scientists in getting Congress or getting the general public to take the price tag for doing this sequence. It was almost, it was kind of a rhythmic, but three billion <laughs> to sequence the three billion. Is, is, it was a dollar, every genome a sequence. Getting the money to do this sequence. The genome project, this is one of the issues even now with access and application yeah. of it, was publicly funded through our tax dollars. Right. Scientists were able to argue to Congress for the value because the scientists were able to say if we sequence the human genome, we will have 
the information that we can hold or find out how to get the information needed to correct every, in the sense, physical, biological problem. This the is a was disease. Yeah. We would have the information because all disease is rooted in the biology. So if we get the sequence of the human genome, we can go in and find the genes that are associated with and ultimately that cause a particular disease. And we, the mindset, we can go in and find the gene first. So that's why we had to create a map. A map gives us the location of the gene. It gives us the coordinates. Where in the genome is the information for making a particular gene that we can relate to a particular disease? On the one hand, let me just make sure. I want to go right to your point, but let me make sure I'm clear as well, just for the listener's sake. There really isn't much difference between, let's say, a mouse and a human being. First of all, the different organisms have different sets. Okay. Uh, chromosomes that contain the genes or the DNA. The DNA is structured in chromosomes. Humans have a set of 23 chromosomes. Other animals have a set of chromosomes that also code for their information. All humans, by definition, have 23 sets of chromosome, a total of 46 chromosomes. 22 of those are what we call the stomatic or make up the body components. And then we have the X and Y, which we call the gender of the sex chromosomes. The X for the female, the Y for the male. So that's one set, the uh, sex chromosomes or the gender chromosomes. That's one set. The other 22 sets can be distinguished by their size, but they all each of them contains information involved in some aspects of biology. Keep in mind, each of us begins life. Each human being begins what I'm going to call the biological stage of life as a single cell. A single cell. A cell, which we call the egg, from the mother has 23 chromosomes, one of which would be the X, okay? Mm -hmm. The sperm from the male also has 23, one of which would be the Y. At fertilization, when the sperm penetrates the egg, it's almost like that penetration starts the program of making the human genome unfold. And each of us starts as a single cell with two complete sets or two complete genomes and with each genome having all the information for making the human body. In the dawn of now, life, that just that one cell that has That one all cell of this has two complete sets for making the whole body and not just making the parts, but how the parts work together to give you a functional and ideally a healthy person. And then in terms of, let's take a look at disease, back to your earlier point. So now we have the genomic sequence completed, and we have people out there. In fact, we recently created, we recently had a spotlight at Religica mm -hmm. on Fragile X syndrome, 
or other mm-hmm. families with special needs where this is genetically, mm-hmm. let, me, let me try to put this mm-hmm. to it's gen, where it's genetically situated. Yes. Are we at a place or do you imagine an unfolding future in the near future where we would be able to go into that sequence and be able to see where that fragile gene is and provide a corrective? I mean, how far off are we on, in the larger question is, how far off are we on, on resolving or presenting significant cures to some of the things that have ailed humanity at a genetic level? It's already here. It's already here. And that's the whole discussion now on CASPER. This CRISPR thing I keep hearing about. Yes, yes the CRISPR, CASPER. We're here. That is a technology that allows us to literally go in and identify the sequence of the DNA that has been shown to be out of order or a a change in that sequence and compared with what we would call the normal, what persons that do not have whatever phenotype, in this case, the fragilex is actually trans, is a genetic disorder. But once you can identify what the problem is, Yes, we have the technology now to go in and literally replace it. When we think of the body, this is why I say I use this as a manufactured complex entity, that just as we can go in and diagnose the problem in a car, for example, and remove that part, that's the defect, and just replace it with that which has been aligned with functioning aspect. That technology is already here. And you may have heard on the news or you may have had in recent discussions, certainly Dr. Francis Collins spoke to it and the recent report of using this technology, CRISPR, in what we call a genomic DNA. That's when you're dealing with transmission from generation, which is different from going in and making a change in what we call a body cell or a somatic cell for any problems, because that's going to be limited to that individual. But it's a whole different story when you're making changes in the egg or sperm or in that portion that's transmitted from one generation. So to answer your question, that technology is already here in a major area of discussion among scientists and the community and part of the kind of thing that deals with the science and religion dialogue mm-hmm. the CRISPR technology and our capacity now to use technology to go in and make changes the um, perceptual aspects of being able to do that also brings in a major question about the DNA itself at the ethical level, mind. let's say. Pardon, I don't mean to interrupt you. At the ethical yes. level, per se. Yes. Uh, Especially at the ethics, this is what I'm saying. And, and that's, not, that's what I'm saying, that the AAAS program is so on point in terms of this being a dialogue on science, ethics, uh, and religion. The whole question of what we can do today through technology versus our motivation is always a positive one to get the support to move the technology. But once we get to that point, how we use it, 
then reflects, you could say, the moral state of the technologist or the scientist, which is the natural connection now with theology. And what do people believe and think about what to do, how to do, and what's right is bringing us to the question that we can do so much with technology. Look at the whole technology era, and now artificial intelligence is big on the arena. And there's this question, there's this question, I think, also about what does it mean to be a human being at a moral level at a time when, best case scenario, we could resolve and cure a number of the illnesses that are affecting our genetic composition on the one hand. Perhaps worst case scenario is that we would create a kind of boutique that's class-based, let's say, of uh, genetic changes that would exclude a significant portion of our humanity. And you'd have kind of 1%, let's say, that would have the genetic privilege that science might afford them. Worst case scenario. Somewhere in the mix of those, we have to find a shared future, don't you think? Michael, that is so on point and gets to the heart of the dialogue between science and religion. Great. Today. Okay. It, it pushes the button on and forces us to look at, shall I say, the motivations of what we do. Not just science is about more than just how to, but we get into the philosophy of science, why to, if you will. And these discussions have to engage both with diverse, if you will, comprehensive, broad perspectives. Now, we have to contrast that about uh, within the system of science that we're operating, which makes the discussion one where we have to have diversity, not only in degenerating the science, but we absolutely must have diversity and appreciation for the uniqueness of individuals and commonalities of groups in why, not only how, but why. You know that's who we are today with the science and religion dialogue, the ethics. What is right? We can do it, but the question is, what is right in terms of... This is so on point. I'm so interested in what you're saying about this. One of the things that this Religica platform is committed to is the level of pluralism or diversity that's necessary for our shared humanity. And that's, that's just one school of thought. There's another out there that says, and we're living into it, I would say, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world, where we distrust diversities, where we have animosity toward pluralisms, and where we have a way of sectionalizing off our humanity from one another in ways that may even potentially, we're already seeing, can lead to massive confusion, animosity, hate speech, violence. These things are happening around us. Do you, as a scientist and as a person of faith, find it more than ironic, maybe tragic, that we're missing the forest for the trees. We share this whole human genome, all of us. How do you make sense, given our political, say, things I just mentioned, given our, our current kind of national global context, how do you make sense of 
all of that as a scientist and as a person of faith? What speaks to all of you, including to your heart? But that's the question certainly has been on my heart and mind from a recognition that it's no coincidence, no coincidence to me. My being in this science, <laughs> use one of my favorite phrases, as such a time as this. Okay. It's a time where each of us, individually and all of us collectively, have to deal with that same question. And, it's, and, and, and pardon my, well, I don't want you to pardon it. I just have a strong bias that the genome project itself is designed to probe that question to us. Because, first of all, we all share, as you say, the human genome. We all have more things that's similar than the things that's different that oftentimes we have used to separate us. For example, let me just do my genomics 101 statement. Now, when the genome was sequenced, after we got this complete sequence, that was a representative sequence. They uh, put a pooling information together from different genomes with di different laboratories were working on different parts of the genome and um, using common technologies for different parts. So this first sequence that was published and when the genome was declared completed in 2003, by the way, that was two years short of 2005, which was the projected huh. 15 years that it would take to get this done. Francis Collins, who had the genome, was often um, very proud of acknowledging that it's the first public, I don't know if it's the first, but it was a public funded project <laughs> that was completed on time and on the budget. <laughs> and, uh, quite, and quite a project at that. A public project <laughs> that was completed on time. In fact, it was ahead of time. Yeah. That's why I put in the dates. It was projected to be 15 years three billion dollars and it started officially in 1990 and named completed in 2003 two Amazing. years that short of 2005 which would have been the 15 years i just put that Amazing. in and as a public but the fact that it was a public project still speaks to the challenges we have today it was funded by tax dollars all of us contributed but it is a science <laughs> that is supported by public dollars. But now that it's completed, access to the knowledge, application of the knowledge is not equitable. And we are now at a time where we are not only looking at the ethics, but it's the ethics that has to factor in equity, ethics and equity in application. Mm -hmm. That's key now, and that's what's challenged. But I want to come back to the genome itself. One of the first lessons it showed, looking at this lineup of whole genome, the three billion nucleotides, one of the first lessons that came from the knowledge was that it takes, and these, these numbers have been verified, they're in, they're in the literature, it takes less than one tenth 
of 1% to make all the proteins. And we can identify parts of the genome that makes proteins, okay? It takes less than one-tenth of 1% of our total genome to account for all of the differences that we see on the surface. All the differences that distinguish us on superficial or surface, all the information that's needed to account for differences in skin color, in hair texture, in anatomical features, the amount of our total inheritance required to account for all the ways we group ourselves largely on geographic origins, if you will, less than a tenth of one percent. I mean, that now, is just that is just breathtaking. I want to make sure we have a moment for the listener to take that information in. Because less than one tenth of one percent is the amount of sequence to make proteins. And that's rooted in even the, um, the, the, we divide the genome, if you will, into what we call, scientists call exons. And those are portions of the sequence that code for protein. And then you've got the rest of the sequence, which is the majority. We have since realized that a large portion of the sequence that does not code for protein. So we call this part the introns, but the large portion of what we call non-coding sequence is involved in making products that relate to regulation and control. Okay. Regulation, just keep in mind, every, every gene that we make, and then we have about 20, 20, 21, 22,000 genes. But for every gene, it has to be tightly regulated in terms of when is it made in the manufacture of this body? Where is it made? How much of it's made in order for you to end up with this working cell and body? Keeping in mind that all of this information is encoded in the manufacturing, and that's sequence information. So we're finding exquisite and wonderful and beautiful and elegant control mechanisms for the part that we do see for it to work together. And it is all ordered. And when you think about the sequence, we're really talking about the order. And so we have a new appreciation for the role of order in life. Just to make it is meaningless if you don't know when it comes and fits into what you're constructing. Now, the significance of yeah. order yeah. is most of that non-coding sequence deals, a large portion of it deals with order and control and regulation. It's also, uh, when we try to fit this into our model of who we are, we ask ourselves, well, what's the portion of our bodies that deal with control and regulation? So it's no coincidence that while the genome was sequenced in what I call the first decade of this third millennium, yes. under Obama's administration, we had the initiation of the brain initiative. Okay. That was 2013. 
years after. So he had the brain initiative. And the he brain, I'm sorry, I want to make sure that the listener gets this. We finished, from what you said, the human genome was sequenced in 2003, two years ahead of schedule. Mm-hmm. Ten years later, 2013, the BRAIN initiative begins. Was announced. The BRAIN initiative, this was under um, Obama's administration. The BRAIN initiative, also an international effort. The goal here now is to map and sequence all the uh, neurons or the brain cells. Knowing that the brain is the organ of expression, if you will, of the mind. Uh And it's now bringing control and regulation. We recognize that the brain controls and regulates the body, organ, cells, and systems. Okay? The question becomes, what regulates the brain? And so this brings the question of the role of the mind, okay, into the dialogue of the operating. Of and the and what, are we, what are we discovering in that that inspires you? Because now we've moved from genetics to the regulation of the brain and the question of its, if it's interface with the mind. What, yes. what do you find in the mystery or the inspiration of that? that well, the here? fact that we have always dealt with the mind, but as a separate entity, you know, we love to partition things. Science almost requires us to partition things in order to study that thing. But we sometimes get lost, as you say, in the forest because we study this and we begin to make what we study the whole. And I think religion, religion, religion sometimes does this too, you know, where it, we cordon off into certain doctrines, for instance, without thinking of the whole piece. I mean, there's a way in which science and religion can learn from each other Absolutely. in this way. That, that's, that is the goal. That's, we're looking at this genome, and one of the first challenges to both the scientists and the religion who come with different answers, but one that inspires me is, this genome is a creation of God. Yeah. And it puts us in the same uh, arena of questions as who created the genome with all of this exquisite design, order, function, and making of man? Let me go to that in a moment, if I may, Georgia. I want to explore this, what you just said, because I want to ask you about how mystery, how God shows up in this and the way you're describing. But can we stay with the brain for another couple of minutes? Because that is yeah. just fascinating. It's- it's very important, the mind-body connection. This okay. is what I'm saying. Okay. There's been the whole arena of people studying the mind. And we separate. We tend to separate that off from science, you yeah. know, from hard science. Okay? We make that metaphysics or outside, metaphysical. But now the genome is showing us in its construct, most of its Hardware, if we look at the genome as the heart, most of its hardware is involved with parts that control and regulate what we see. So it's like introducing invisible component, if you will, determining what the visible will be. And then we creating a construct of ourselves, who we are, how we relate to each based on what we see. That's the point. 
or what we can measure, which is the definition of science. To be accepted as hard science, the one requirement is you must be able to measure it because reproducing what you get is one of the requirements for it to be accepted as good science, okay? Now we have a genome that's of our foundation, of, if you will, of who we are, first telling us that most of what you are at the architecture of the genome level is not in what you see. Mm. And it's one of the kinds of questions that probed us to the wonders and revisiting what is man? <laughs> and uh, the religion person may put their question in the context of what is man that God is mindful of him? Okay? The scientist is using that information to ask the question what makes us human? Okay? Yes. The scientists may be asked, what makes us human in this construct? It's the same question that the theologian might ask, what is man? <laughs> okay. So those questions come together in this dialogue. But the, the genome, let's say the genome is the response to the question. Okay. And I like to say, too, that we, in fact, I work with, um, in my science that I'm doing now, I work with a theoretical physicists. Who, by the way, was most responsive to the information I was sharing with him on the things that make us different in the genome. My research focuses on points of variation in the genome, points of variation that distinguish us as populations, okay, and uh, also those same points of variation can be associated with various diseases. And we often then put the two together and say this gene is, a, is associated and thus is related to this disease. And the very erroneous, erroneous concept that there's some kind of gene disease one-to-one -one relationship because there are examples of a few genes a very few genes, and this is the arena of the field of genetics, is so complex that we can only really oftentimes work on those things that are rare in order to be able to tease it out and see it. But my point being that the challenge of trying to apply the genome to common diseases to make it relevant to the general public. Those diseases that are rare are great teaching lessons for the biology, but that's not what the genome was sequenced to get information or get knowledge on how to treat and cure common diseases. That's how it was distinguished from just the routine techniques of genetics on this genetics path. The Genome Project promised to get the knowledge that would be applicable to treating, preventing, and hopefully, certainly to diagnosing common diseases. That's why in the early days of the genome product, it was not uncommon at all to see on the headlines a gene for hypertension, a gene for cancer, a gene for 
asthma, a gene for these very complex diseases that we now know the science shows us there are very complex pathways with multiple genes interacting in different ways at different points that actually underlie what we lump together as the common disease. In other words, and that's been part of the challenge, take breast cancer, for example, where I came into the game. breast cancer. At the clinical level, it was diagnosed by, as breast cancer by the cellular characteristic. But to get to that stage requires multiple pathways of genes interacting in a sequence in relationship to each other. When we do genetic studies, we end up being able to find out, yes, we can find a gene that is altered that we can associate with this disease we call breast cancer. But we were not sensitive to the fact that while the science was good for the results you got, we didn't have a full appreciation for what was also important that was not factored into the results we got, which is that the same disease can be caused by another step or another gene in the pathway. So you can't rush to cure breast cancer based on the success you got with a well-designed and carried out study will show good results in relationship to that gene. You can't now say that we have the gene for breast cancer, therefore we can make a product and we can go and treat every woman. So are there are there different, I could imagine, different, say, environmental conditions that can turn on a gene and move in one direction? But first of all, different genes. Different, this is what I'm saying. Different genes. Gene is not appreciated that there are multiple genes in that pathway to that common disease. That we began to recognize immediately when we tried to apply the knowledge to someone other than persons who met the criteria so of it's those not, that were used to find yeah, that result. It's not that simple. I see what you mean. I mean, other genes can turn this on. Environmental other conditions, genes, can, yes, environmental right. conditions can turn it on. Or I would also imagine age could have an impact on this, just the age of the biological entity, the human being. But see, now you're getting at the whole biology underlying regulation. There are some genes that are turned on at different points in time, and we don't necessarily know how that gene is related to the one that we identify. Yes. This, this is what I'm saying. Age is a factor because different genes are, have different expressions at different stages in a life cycle. We don't know. For example, even with breast cancer, the data showed us that black women, for example, had an early form of breast cancer that was more aggressive. The data were clear. You look at a group of black women with breast cancer, you look at a comparison group of white women with breast cancer, the data were clear that black women had diagnosable clinical breast cancer but it occurred early in earlier in life than the stage of occurrence in white. And that's also pointing to there's a different genetics operating in this same clinical problem. And we have since really identified what we call the triple negative, which is a cellular definition now where the cells 
in the breast cancer have some different external features, shall I say, in terms of markers that are on there. And these markers have biological function because they are receptors for different chemicals, which means then when you develop a chemical that will work, in this case, hormone treatment with white women who had a form that had a marker that you can use estrogen to interfere with the bio. But if you're dealing with black women with a cancer that don't have this marker, you can treat them all day long with a marker that you have good data to show that it was effective for this clinical disorder. And all you're doing is causing a double problem in the black women in this case, because one, you are not getting at what's the basis of their problem. And you're giving them something foreign that they now have to deal with in terms of the body's mechanism to deal with all kinds of uh, treatments, particularly pharmaceutical treatments. I'd like to make just two points listening to you. The first is this, and then I'd like to make the second point. The first is you mentioned the three billion in terms of genetic sequencing, and I thought about it in terms of at the moment of kind of on one grid, but as a puzzle. He said it's like a puzzle, three billion sequenced puzzle. But really, it strikes me that this is somewhat like a 3D puzzle. Environment and age and when genes turn on, all of that creates this complicated 3D version of what you're talking about. That's the first point. But the second one is this, based on your last comments. What you just identified, inequality is always evident, it seems to me, in where we dedicate our funds. So research funding that has a preferential option, let's say, to white women who have cancer at a particular age that isn't mindful of black women who are experiencing cancer at a certain age. That's where, just by way of example, we see deep structural inequalities. That happens. I think that's part but of it. But see it as an outcome of our system, which is part of what has to be revealed if we are going to address this in a tough way. It wasn't intended to be unequal. But we must recognize that the very way we do science leads to the inequalities that we are now experiencing as we try to apply the science. But it wasn't intended to be for white women. Right. But how how do we address that? Let me also introduce here, we have to recognize that it also is rooted in our society, which is why I spoke about how we define ourselves and in America particularly, being very base conscious in its construct yes. of its people and population. The inequities that didn't start with the health inequities, it also was rampant in even the science. What science we choose to do? Who's doing the science? We look at uh, a particular the beginning of the genome project when I came into it. The usual people who actually are the thought leaders for what science will be done and who's doing it. We didn't see at that time the consequences of our racial construct on the science. I mean, oh. scientists love to think of themselves as objective. And one of the things that even brain research is showing us that who's doing the scientists and the perception and the perspectives 
of who is as much in what is seen. Because the truth really is, you see what you believe as opposed to yes. science operating on you believe what you see. Science is embedded in evidence. Those are popular words today, evidence-based, okay? But science, by definition, what you can measure, so it bases its reality on what can be measured. But the genome is challenging the whole paradigm, if you will. And so I'm concerned about not throwing out the positive and the strengths of science in a contest between science and religion. That's what hurts my heart most because this genome has been sequenced as the creator's effort to help us get it right so that we can now use the knowledge that is now available to us to get to the desired end rather than use the knowledge in a competitive, combative way of what right versus wrong and who gets the money to sell their product. It is an ethical issue of society today and how we do life. This genome has been sequenced as a gift from the creator to help us get it right about how biology works. And biology cannot work without first recognizing that what you see cannot be the reality of what's there. And this is what I would say. Biology is telling us we need the diversity that's built into the very nature of the genome, that's built into the very construct of populations. Population diversity genome sequence is essential for us to get at the very information we're trying to get at. But we come to it influenced by old ways of thinking that say to us that the truth is what you can measure. We've got to recognize that like many good men, you got to get a right diagnosis before you can get a right treatment. Yeah. And we have the question, we have the technology, we have the means now to really get at the things that are the desire of our heart. In fact, scientists right now in artificial intelligence, we have this big challenge between what's considered the techno-messianic age. Okay. Because scientists can say, we don't need your God anymore to heal the sick. Yeah. We don't need your God to even raise the dead. Because science now can heal, and I have literally personally seen the use of knowledge on the baths that control cells to actually see in a test tube a cancer cell literally transformed into a normal cell. Because we know what's the environment and what the cell needs in terms of what causes it to express as a cancer cell. So my point is, scientists are now in this artificial intelligence where they're presenting science as doing everything your Messiah did. And the whole story of whether it's everything or not, just based on the fact that we can show this cell transformed or not. But it's a big area tied with robotics. That's what I was saying to you earlier. Artificial intelligence with robotics is speaking to this thought that I can make my 
become man, if yeah. you will, or person. And that's an ethical issue, whether or not, and we have to ask, well, what's the ethics? What's the right thing for the scientists who can write the programs that can make, make the robots that's that a can major... begin to talk to each other? What are they saying to each other, and where do they get their information? And that's something for all of us to recognize it because we are there now. We're there with the technology. So it's, it, it's key. Now, I'm saying, what is the genome? The genome, for me, we define, I was telling you about my yes. research relationship with the theoretical physicist. But the genome, to me, is the ultimate in terms of an information molecule and also a communication. Okay. This genome is, to, is information and communication about life. Okay, that's one of my things. I have a talk next week. It's part of one of our graduation talks where I'm talking about the human genome model and legacy of life. What is the genome telling us as a model of life? What because is it, that's what, what is it's about. Us? Like, what now, we, my point yeah. I'm trying to, to really stress here is the genome forces us to look at our paradigm, our model which is based on what we believe that scientists say is based on the facts. But science doesn't allow for an appreciation that its facts are so limited in terms of reality mm. that there could, you could, we could the appreciate a healthy ability yeah. with the facts without taking the facts beyond what they actually can confirm. And that's what What's happening when you start thinking the facts that I have here, you know, now I can make my own robot to do what I want, when I want, as I want, and I don't need X, Y, Z. And how society is listening to that, and then we deal with all the questions of how does this affect jobs, how do jobs affect people's life, and how, and, you know, we're getting back to fundamental questions again is, what is life? So I look at the genome coming at this time, really probing the question of what does it mean to be human? But that answer has to fit in a much larger paradigm yeah. than what our current construct is. Now, I love that I fast forward to the career. I love to say that what it means to be human is the the purpose and intent of this human genome is that we would manifest, we would magnify, we would actually give visible evidence of the reality of the invisible God, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Humans are made to manifest the program. I mean, of in this, God. in this is one of the question marks I have in my mind that we have so many areas of conflict in our world. But on the other hand, we're surrounded by mystery, very complicated mystery, however sequenced, that the genome says something not just about our structure, but about the universe, about the beauty and elegance or eloquence, as you call it, even in our relationship with God, that all of this can also mean we can have an enriched relationship with one another and with the planet. It's a fascinating moment, right? We're surrounded by mystery that science is bringing that yes. faith and religion wants to attest to, but somehow in our humanity, it's like walking in a cave without a flashlight. 
What is it going to take for us to recognize that mystery and beauty all around us? That we have the light in us. If you enter in a cave, to first recognize that what you need is light. That's the beginning. If you deny that you are in darkness, you cannot treat the remedy Uh. for it, which is light. So there is no coincidence in the symbolism between religious concepts, certainly in our Christianity. But I recognize that my culture is in Christianity, but Christianity, even by its own definition, is about truth. And to that extent, the diversity of our religious beliefs now can be a strength because they all claim truth. But now we have means and technologies that we can literally test the truth, just as we're invited to do, okay? And if it's the truth, it's based on law. If all science is, is patterns and discovering what are the rules that govern the patterns that you're studying. Have we sometimes, have we sometimes to this very point, If science is like the roadmap and the mystery of our life and how we even live as biological agents, all of that is the terrain. Do we sometimes miss the roadmap for the terrain? I mean, there's depth to be harvested in everything you're saying. But how about it forces us, if you've got a roadmap, to me, if the map works and you have any success, which is what we have bits and pieces of, the question to me is, who wrote, who laid out the map? How do you answer that? That's the question. Who laid out the map that allows you to demonstrate that you can go where you want to go if you follow a certain time code? That's the challenge of it. Some, the map is real. The fact that you can do your science is what I'm saying. The fact that science even is science is what it is is because it's based on laws that govern how you get from one place to another. It was so great, Georgia. What is, as a scientist, when you look at the human genome and now brain studies underway, can we make a case for all this kind of being reckoned to chaos theory that, given enough time, creates this superstructure that's incredibly logical and law-based? As a scientist and as a person of faith, I imagine you could make it When we look at what science shows us from the highest heights, which is cosmology, and, and we from the astrophysics and cosmology is one of the areas that you and I have shared in terms of the astrophysicist as glorifying God and the scriptures that tie uh, God to the cosmos, okay, or relate uh, God to all I'm saying is from the beginning was this same awesomeness that science of space and the cosmos is giving us about the universe, multi-universes, but our Earth and our place in it. And when we look at the science of the precision with which this Earth must orbit and and how life evolved and how it's related one to another, the precision, to me, that's the same 
we use the same word now. That's the same precision medicine when we go to the deepest depth. If cosmology is the highest heights of reality, for me, the genome is the deepest depths of reality. And we are finding the same precision in the making of every gene and putting the body together. The body is more exquisite than multiple universes at the level of a cell. And I love to give this slide where I say, I talked about everyone beginning as a single cell, but before that cell growth requires that cell divide. But before a cell divides, it duplicates all of this genetic information. So that when it divides, the two cells get the same genetic information for making an operator. Those two cells will divide into four. But before each cell divides, it duplicates its genetic information. The four become eight. The eight becomes 16, 32. What I'm trying to get at is in the making of the human body, which is made of trillions of cells, and we can just look on the surface and we see differences. Eyes different from eyebrows, different from nose, differences. But each one of the cells have the same genetic information that was passed to it from its parent, if you will. The same. Look at the diversity on the outside that we use to separate ourselves into different. Yeah. But at the genome level, this is where that number comes from. At the genome level, the amount of your total genomic information that it takes to account for all the differences you see on the surface is minuscule compared to what makes you human. So we have a question to ask then. Are we going to limit our sense of who we are and what we are to our concept of reality based on less than a tenth But the makeup of the genome is challenging us now to say most of who you are in terms of your anatomy, in terms of, your, of the genome's anatomy, is not in what you see on the surface, but it's the inner reality. And that inner reality cannot be separated from the function of your brain or your psychology, which is tied to what you believe. Thinking is a biological process. We can now actually put probes on the brain and actually follow energy constructs that go with certain ways of thinking. And there have been attempts to look at meditators and look at people who have uh, various kinds of abnormal brain activity. And we can actually begin to map so that we can measure what's the correlation between the chemistry of this area of the brain which controls this part of the body. So that we can now begin to see what's the relationship between what we think and the instructions that we are literally given to the body as to how to survive in the environment that we tell it with it. That's the lesson of the genomicist. The genome is about survival. It shows us how we have survived as humankind over all kinds of environments. And yet each of us is here because we have a successful 
genome. The genome is about survival. It does not make moral decisions about how you choose to live the life. That but, it just gives you survival. But we are, you and I and everyone else living right now, are at the cusp of the wave of this genome as yes. it now stands on the planet. And we do have, don't we, a moral responsibility about how we invite or exclude pollutants, let's say, that impact that genome. Or we have a moral responsibility about how we characterize one another in ways that honor the integrity of each of us, not divided into these subdivisions of class or race, certainly racism, these kinds of structures that tear apart our shared humanity. My point, I'm going on, my point is, is it the case, do you think, that our moral responsibility is even more compounded by what you've named? We stand on the shoulders of a genomic giant that we also have responsibility to. I like to think we have the knowledge of the creator. Okay. The creator of the genome who knows how it was put together, who knows how it works, has now given us through science, given us the blueprint, if you will, is what the genome was referred to, has given us the manufacturer's handbook, if you will, in the context of, you might say, religions. But we need to recognize that the religions uh, should be based and rooted in truth. So the way science and religion come together now is how do we use the best technologies of truth to determine the quality of what we use in the application of this truth. And we need the diversity to actually see the truth. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's a new mindset. It's a new creation, if you will if you will allow me that description. And you can't superimpose and you can't retrofit yesterday's error thinking on today's knowledge of who you mm. must be transformed by the renewing of your mind mm, yeah. about who you are. And, and what better source of information than the word from the creator yeah. of the genome? It's trying to tell us, I made you. I know how you work. You have to listen to my word, whether it conforms to your science. You, that's a choice. That's the one freedom we have in life. We can choose what we believe. We can then not orchestrate it and control the outcome because everything is under law. After you make a choice, how that works then is under law, including your very thoughts. Thoughts are things. They can amplify each other, they can neutralize each other, or they can depress each yeah, other. Yeah. But your thinking is a biological process. We are speaking to our genome 24-7 about what the reality is that is in and it follows our instruction. It follows our word. It makes no judgment. Are you really stressed beyond compare? It just takes the reality that we're in and gives us a genomic response that best adapts us to that environment. So we literally do have to think about 
what we believe is the truth because we create based on what we believe, not on what we seek. This is terrific. I really mean this. I could have a conversation two hours, three hours a week with you like this, Georgia, and I always come away inspired. It helps me rethink. Honestly, really, I think about my humanity differently. I think that the listener needs to think about the composite of their their relationship to God, to one another, to the world. It's more than edifying. Yeah, I think what you're giving is a is also a challenge of encouragement, like to just see all of this. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.